Wadsworth Longfellow. Maybe a name you recognize. If not, he was a, a poet. He was an educator. He had lived in uh, the 1800s. And uh, this particular day, it was the summer of 1861. Henry was at work in the study of his wonderful home. It was the historic Craigie House overlooking the Charles River in Cambridge, Massachusetts. A beautiful setting. Look out his window and be inspired to write his poems. But he had grown tired and decided to take a little nap in his study. In the adjoining room, his wife... Francis, was cutting the hair of one of the daughters, one of six children. Her name was Edith. And Eddie had been complaining because her long curls in the summer were not very pleasant. I don't have any understanding of what that feels like. So mom decided to give her her first haircut, but wanted to keep some of the golden curls from her hair. And so she snuck into the study where Henry was asleep to, res- to go find an envelope and some sealing wax so she can save some curls. She went back into the room where the girls were and, and she began to open the envelope, place the curls in there, and then she began to melt some of the wax to seal the envelope to keep it safe. And somehow in the process, an ember from the fire had landed upon her skirt. And she was wearing a very thin summer dress and immediately... Flames began to spread, and the more she tried to pat them out, the more they seemed to grow, and she grew very frantic and ran into the study because she didn't want to be where the girls were to possibly cause any further harm for them, and so she ran into the study, and by the time she got across the way into the study where Henry was, she was fully engulfed in flames. And he jumps up from his nap, hearing the the screaming at the door, and he begins to grab a, a, a rug that he could find to try to wrap around his wife to stop the flames, but it was too small. The, the flames continued to grow, and so he resorted to just grabbing her and patting the fire out with his own arms, with his body. And in the meantime, both of them were severely burned. Frances wouldn't recover from her injuries, and she died the following morning on that sunny July 9th, now 10th of, 9th of 1861. Henry himself was also severely burned, but now also grief-ridden. In fact, the day of her funeral, he did not attend, because not only was he sick in body, he was sick at heart, and he couldn't stand the pain of going to her service. It devastated his life, as well as the lives of the kids. To deal with the pain outside, within his own body, and in his heart, he began to resort to opium try to soothe the pain. He was afraid that he was losing his mind, and he begged for his friends and his family not to send him to the asylum, noting that he was inwardly bleeding to death. His physical appearance was also beginning to change. He had been severely burned in his arms and his face to the point where he could no longer shave and keep the look he'd enjoyed for so many years, and so he grew a beard to hide his disfigured face. And mentally, he sank deeper into depression. The first Christmas after Francis's death, that, that same year, 1861, he wrote in his journal, how inexpressibly sad are all holidays. A year after the incident, so the following July, 
he writes into his, into his journal, I can make no record of these days. Better leave them wrapped in silence. Perhaps someday God will give me peace. Longfellow's journal entry of December, a year later, 1862, he writes, A Merry Christmas, say the children, but that is no more for me. In 1863, Longfellow suffered another blow. The poet was a strong abolitionist as much as many were in the regions in which he lived. And he was totally against slavery, but he was seeing what this war was doing to his own nation. The war that began the very same year his wife died. The war that was tearing up homes all across our nation. But his son, Charlie, wanted to go fight in the war. Henry couldn't stand the idea of losing another loved one, and he forbid him to go. Charlie, being of age, left against his father's wishes and entered into the military in Washington, D.C. to enlist in the Massachusetts Artillery. In November of that same year, 1863, Charlie's unit was engaged in a battle at New Hope, Virginia, and he was shot. The wound was from back to shoulder, just nicking his spine. When Henry heard of his his son's wound in November, he traveled to Washington to go retrieve his son, to bring him home, to care for him. So now in his own grief of his loss of his wife, he's caregiving for his son, who's been injured in a war that nobody wanted to see take place in their nation. On Christmas Day of 1863, Longfellow, who was now a 57-year-old widowed father of six children, the oldest of whom had been nearly paralyzed as his country fought a war against itself, he wrote a poem to try to capture, as all artists do, the dissonance in his own heart and the world around him. As he was sitting there on Christmas Day, he heard the bells tolling from the nearby church singing of their peace on earth, and he observed that was not what the world was experiencing. There was injustice, there was violence, there was hatred, and it seemed to mock the truthfulness of what those bells were saying. And so he wrote, I heard the bells on Christmas Day. Their old familiar carols play, and wild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And thought how as the day had come, the belfries of all Christendom had rolled along the unbroken song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Till ringing, singing on its way, the world revolved from night to day, a voice, a chime, a chant sublime of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Probably sounds familiar to most of you in this room. The words of that poem set to music and sang by my favorite Christmas crooner. Bing Crosby. But this poem did not begin as a song celebrating a Christmas season. It was expressing the tension he felt in his heart of the loss he experienced against the message of peace that Christmas proposed. And so he continued writing verses that you won't sing in the Christmas carol version of this song, but were found in the original poem, Christmas Bells, that he wrote. He writes, then from each black accursed mouth, the cannon thundered in the south, and with the sound, the carols drowned of peace on earth, goodwill 
to men. It was as if an earthquake rent the hearthstones of a continent and made forlorn the households born of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said. For hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. I could imagine Henry pausing at this point of the poem. We liked how it opened. It had hope of peace. Then it turned dark as he thought about the war that was tearing apart his own country. As he thought about the turmoil within his own heart, he began to recognize these do not compute. Peace on earth and what I'm experiencing in life and in the world around me do not compute. For hate is strong and mocks that song. And I could see him pausing, dealing with that tension that he had written out of the dark circumstances in and around his life and this promise of peace on earth. But yet from somewhere deep within his soul, I think deeper than his own pain, deeper than his own confusion, a message of hope welled up, louder than the Christmas bells that chimed from the nearby church. And his pen moves to action, giving words to this swelling message that he writes, then peeled the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail. With peace on earth, goodwill to men. You uh, hear that song every year, but often don't know the story from which that song comes. And the broken-hearted writer of that song, dealing with his own pain from his wife's death, his son's injury, and the world in turmoil. I could not imagine what it was like to live in our Americas during the Civil War. When our hatred and our passions turned toward each other. And very likely households all throughout the place where Henry lived was during those Christmas seasons grieving the loss of a son who died way too young, fighting a war against his fellow countrymen. I couldn't imagine that. But yet today we look at our own world, don't we? And we say, peace on earth? It's all just rubbish. It's just a, it's just a fancy dream. Where, where is peace on earth that supposedly comes around Christmas time? That's certainly what Henry could have been wrestling with in his own pain. But yet somewhere from deeper down, a truth sounded. God's not dead and he doesn't sleep. And while we can't understand what's going on in our world, the wrong will fail and the right will prevail with peace on earth. Peace. What do you think about when you hear that word? Maybe for some of you, it's like a desire or a dream that just always seems to be just beyond your reach. And you pray for it, and you hope it comes the next day. But it always seems to be just one more day away, doesn't it? Peace. Why is it one of the themes of Christmas? Why is it a message of Advent? Peace. Well, we're going to look at that today. Because it is a theme of Christmas, 
And maybe built within that theme of something different about peace that perhaps you didn't understand or comprehend. See, about 700 years before the birth of Jesus, the prophet Isaiah wrote about the coming peace. In fact, he called peace the Prince of Peace. I bring you to the, back to Isaiah. We've been here before, and by the way, if you want to follow along with today's message, I encourage you to do that a couple of ways. One is use the YouVersion Bible app. Many of you have that app on your smart devices Produced by Life Church, a great free Bible app for all of you with great reading plans. If you go in the Bible app and you go to events under your menu, you'll find Neighborhood Church, one of the live events in your location. Also, you can go to our website, and notes are available there for you as well on our website. Isaiah 9:6. And you have to understand that as dark as the times were around Henry and the war and his own personal loss, Isaiah ministered in a very dark time. Israel, which had been the northern kingdom, was about to be invaded by Assyria and hauled into captivity. They would be left from their land of promise, never to return. And Judah, the the tribes in the south where Isaiah lived, would also soon be facing a military power they have not seen amassed outside the walls of their city. And he writes, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, And the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Imagine being the prophet Isaiah. Speaking of peace in a time when Israel had turned their backs completely on God and were about to be invaded. Sounds like a far-fetched dream, Isaiah. Peace. In fact, that peace, the Prince of Peace, would still be 700 years away. But Luke records the story, right? Luke chapter 2, the coming of the Prince of Peace Verse 4, so Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth and Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David. That's a distance about like between Albany and Portland, about 80 miles between those two cities. And he belonged to the house in the line of David. He went there registered with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths, placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were terrified. Why were they terrified? You don't see angels normally on your duty watching sheep. Secondly, the glory of the Lord is a powerful thing. It had left the temple of the Old Testament and never returned. And now it's appearing to shepherds out in the countryside. The glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You'll find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven. And on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. Many of your translations might say, peace on earth, 
goodwill to men. To get the best understanding of this famous announcement in the promise Isaiah, we have to remind ourselves of what peace is in the Bible. Because when it comes to peace, as far as we see it in the Bible, peace is not a general peacefulness with prosperity. It's not a trouble-free life, as much as we would like that. I know there's some people who thought, well, once I give my life to Christ, it's going to be peaceful and wonderful, and everything's going to go right for me. Well, somebody preached a different gospel than what we find in the Bible to them. Peace as it's used in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, it means harmonious relations and freedom from dispute. That's what peace means. It also has uh, a sense of being uh, whole, of completeness, of well-being. And that's often characterized by reconciled relationships. So perhaps the best way to show that is to go to the Bible and look at some examples of peace. And the first one we see in the Bible is peace with God. Peace with God. The Bible says, and I would agree, in fact, most of us would agree, that the most fundamental and important peace that we could ever have is peace with God. In fact, maybe you've heard people who have said toward their, toward their dying day, they've said, I've made peace with God, or I've made my peace with him. Well, what does that mean? Have they really made peace? What does that mean to say, I've made peace with God? So here's the problem. As humans... Our natural tendency is to want to be our own king. We want to be in charge of our own lives. And so we rebel against any claims God might have of lordship over our life. That's what happened with the birth of sin. Adam and Eve chose to exalt themselves over God's wisdom. And sin was birthed. And not much has changed. In fact, maybe that gives us a bit more clarity of why Isaiah the prophet said, He'll be called Prince of Peace. He is a Lord of Peace. He deserves to be Lord of your life. But meanwhile, we're committed to the idea that the only way we will be happy, the only way we will find peace, is when we are in charge of our own lives. So the new American word is, whatever's good for me is good for me. Don't tell me what to do. I'll be the master of my own life. And my question is, how is that working for us? Because when I want to be master of my own life, I actually will never experience peace. Why is that? Because the side effects of trying to be in control of your own life and find your own peace, the side effects of that are anxiety, fear, anger, conflict. Those have nothing. Those are not synonyms for the word peace. That is the the exact opposite. When we try to fight for controlling our own life and, and our own destiny, we will never find peace. As much as we think that we will, it'll always be one more step away. So how do we find peace with God? Maybe you're here today and you're going, Kelly, I've I've already got peace with God. I'm good. Yeah, but maybe there are some here that aren't. So how? How do I have peace with God? Well, the first step toward peace with God is to recognize that there is actually enmity between you and God, that there is a dispute. That dispute is called sin. That is between you and God. And the good news is it doesn't have to stay there, but we have to acknowledge it, that there's a broken relationship between you and God. A lot of folks don't want to acknowledge that because they don't want to acknowledge God because if there is a God, then I'm accountable to God. But the other, not, other side of that argument is if there is a God, there also is grace and reconciliation. 
So first, acknowledge it. Second, step toward peace with God is, is to acknowledge that God has actually provided a solution for that broken relationship through his son Jesus. Look at what Romans 5 says. Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God. How? Through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Here's the thing. Jesus came not only as the messenger of peace, which I'm so glad he was. He preached peace. We'll look at that in a minute. But he also was the means to peace with God. So he was a messenger of how to have peace with God, but he was also the way, the means by which we do find that peace with God. Look at what it says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 17 about Jesus. He came and preached peace to you who were far away. And I'm so glad he did that because I've been one of the far aways, and perhaps you have as well. He preached peace to those who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. The third step to peace with God is to basically accept Christ as our only Savior and Lord. I say only Savior and Lord because I still think there's a part of us that feels like we save ourselves. No, you don't. He's our only Savior and Lord. There is no other way. There is no other means. There's no other secret knowledge. There's no other person who gives you access to the Father. Colossians 1, 19, for God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him, Jesus, and through him, Jesus, to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross that we just celebrated during communion. So the proclamation of Christmas that we sing in one of the great Christmas carols of this season is God and sinners reconciled. God and sinners reconciled. That's what I love about Christmas. Any radio station you go to, you're going to hear of God's desire for reconciliation until they ban Christmas carols. Isn't that wonderful that every year there's a reminder? Let's not forget it. The greatest peace we can have is peace with God. In fact, I'll, I'll say it this way. Peace with God does not come from what you do. And aren't you glad it's not about you? It does not come from what you do. Peace with God comes from what Jesus has done already for you. There's no more doing involved. It's done. We now have peace with God through Jesus. It's done. Not through trying harder, not through being better, not from giving more. No, peace with God is done through Christ Jesus. Some of us need to learn how to just rest in that peace with God that he has offered to you through Jesus. And then from that comes peace with each other. So peace with God, we like that. We want to get things right. But there's also in the Bible peace with each other. This is where it gets a little harder, right? It's it more challenging here. Why? Because, again, that self-centered desire we have to command and control our own lives leads to conflict with other people. And so today, chances are, you are conflicted with somebody Maybe they're in your family, maybe they're a friend of yours, and you're in conflict. And that conflict probably is partly because of some things that you've done or some things they have done that were very self-oriented, a desire to control. And so now you have unrest, not peace. 
Peacemakers, though, are people who have learned to make their peace with God. And because of that, part of the process of making peace with God is recognizing what you brought to the problem with God, which is your sin, which means you got to be able to admit your failures, which ruins your pride, which then allows you to maybe be a little more loving and honest and vulnerable to those who also have hurt you or that you have hurt. So here's the thing when it comes to peace with God. Once we've made peace with God and we're in a relationship with Him, He he puts within our lives the Holy Spirit. And the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. Love, joy, peace. And it goes on from there to patience, all kinds of relational skills that He gives us when we make peace with Him that dwell in our lives to facilitate forgiveness and reconciliation between us and other people. Paul summarizes it this way in Ephesians 2. For he himself, speaking of Jesus, is our peace, who has made the two groups, he's talking about uh, groups in conflict, which were primarily Jews and Gentiles, makes the two groups one. So there was racial problems back in the day in which Paul wrote as much as we have uh, racial tension today in our world. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which we put to death, or he put to death, their hostility. So here's the deal. God desires a unified people under him. When we have peace with God, then we have to be willing and able to make peace with others. Romans 14, 19, let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and mutual edification. I love that. Maybe you need to underline, make every effort. Well, if he will just, or if she will know, you make every effort to do what leads to peace and mutual edification. The truth that's embedded here in these verses is that when we make peace with God, that peace with God will influence our relationships with others. Because if I make peace with God, but I refuse to make peace with people, something is wrong. Something is broken. Something is disconnected because peace with God will always lead to peace with others. In fact, I'll say it this way. If you are not able to make peace with others, it will affect your peace with God. It will. I'm not sure how. It doesn't remove your peace, but it will affect your peace with God. He touches on this when he talks about forgiveness. If you are unwilling to forgive others who have sinned against you, there is an impact spiritually between you and God. So, If you're not able to make peace with others, it will affect your peace with God. And maybe the tension you feel and the unrest you feel is because you know there are things that need to be made right relationally around you. Peace with God, then peace with others. And the third peace we see in the Bible is peace within our broken world. Peace within our broken world. See, when Jesus came, he came to offer peace. That's what Isaiah said. That's what the angels said. And here we see Jesus came to bring peace unlike anything this world can offer. In fact, in John 14, 27, and again, 
the events happening in this moment, Jesus was about to be arrested. He was about to be beaten, falsely accused, and go to a cross. Okay? These are not bright and cheery days for Jesus. Right? He knows what's in front of him. But he says to his disciples in that gathering, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Well, what kind of peace does the world give? The world bases its peace on resources, right? Stuff, things. If you have this, do this, go there, smell this, sniff this, taste this, drink this, you will find peace. But it's fleeting. It's not peace. While God's peace depends on a relationship, not resources. It depends on something that comes only through Christ. We also can see that Jesus came to bring peace that's personal. It's not just some kind of force at work in our world today. Peace is something that's personal. Let me give you an example. Some of you parents remember this with your small children. Perhaps it just happened last night. I remember times as a parent, I have four kids. There are times when my kids would cry out at night because they had a bad dream. And two things are inevitable. One, they're going to end up in my bed. Or two, I'm going to end up with them in their bed. Why? Because no matter how much reason you try to use with a child at night who's had a scary dream, no matter how much well-wishing, no matter how much talking and arguing and comforting with your words you bring, nothing is like having you next to them. In fact, one of my children, who will remain nameless, but attends this church, and that's why this child will remain nameless. Um, every, every night at bed, we would have a routine, read a Bible story, tell a Bible story, listen to some music together until he drifted off. Uh, now, I, now you know it's two of my four kids. <laughs> but he knew that once he fell asleep, I would leave. So he invented ways to use his body to lock on to me. <laughs> you know, it's like parents trying to extricate yourself from your child, from the bed, so they don't wake up. Why? Because when you're with them, your presence is peace. No amount of reasoning fixes that, but your presence does. You see, that's what I love about the peace of Christmas. It wasn't just some well-wishing written across the sky with, a, with an airplane magically reading, writing words of peace. It was wrapped in swaddling clothes and laying in a manger. Peace was very much a person because peace is not a place that you go. Although there are some fun places to go, peace is not a place you go. Peace is not a position that you achieve, that you're trying to strive for, and finally when I get there, I'll find peace. Peace is not a practice that you perform, if I can just find that right thing, I'll find peace and harmony and balance. No, and it's also not a pill that you take. Peace is a person that you embrace, and his name is Jesus. And I'm so glad he's a personal Lord. Look at what Paul says. By the way, most of Paul's writings happened when he was in prison, a good place to want to have peace when you're not sure what day is going to be your last. Ephesians, he says, for he himself, speaking of Jesus, he is peace. 
He is our peace. He knows the person of Jesus is the source of peace. John 16, again, Jesus said in 33, I have told you these things about things that are coming so that in me you may have peace. In me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. So his own perfect peace that he has established between himself and the Father, that peace he's like, I offer you. Even in the troubles you'll face. And they would, because they would watch their Lord be arrested, beaten, crucified, and placed into a tomb. They would need his peace and the assurance of his presence with them because they were going to face persecution as followers of Jesus. These were not happy-go-lucky days. These weren't happy days or here again. This was trouble that they experienced in the first century world as Christians. But they knew peace was a person, and his name was Jesus, who was with them. And the good news for us is today, we have the Holy Spirit with us to bring us peace. Also, Jesus came to bring a peace that guards your heart and your mind. Guards your heart and mind. Boy, aren't those places we need to be guarded? Because most all of our problems in life are here and here. Our hearts and our minds. The things we think about, the things we set our affections upon. We need peace to govern and guard those things. Philippians 4, 6. Paul says, don't be anxious. And again, he's writing this in prison. <laughs> right? I'm going to listen to a guy writing, don't be anxious, who's writing it from prison. I'm going to pay attention to him. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything or every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. So we have a part to, to bring, Paul says. Here it is. Don't be anxious pray. Don't be anxious, pray. That means when you're feeling burdened, you pray. The things that keep you awake at night, you pray. You seek him, you pray. That's what we do, okay? Look at what he only then can do, because this next part has nothing to do with what you can provide. Look what it says. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, which means even when it doesn't make sense to have peace, and everything inside you cries out. It passes your understanding. That peace will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. We pray, we petition. He brings the peace that guards our heart and our minds in Christ Jesus. Here's why that's important. Because I have made really stupid decisions when I have been anxious with my mind and my heart. I need him to guard that. Trusting in him, his peace that will come, that I can stop warring and controlling, and I can rest in the peace that he will give me, even when it doesn't make sense. Finally, Jesus came to bring peace within, amidst chaos without. Peace within right in the middle of chaos that is happening around us. Again, the prophet Isaiah talking about this Prince of Peace. Later in his writings, Isaiah 26.3, he speaks of God, you will keep in perfect peace. Perfect peace. I love, it's not just peace. It's godly peace, perfect peace. Those whose minds are steadfast because they trust in you. Who will he keep in perfect peace? those who's trusting in him, whose minds are set upon him. And peace, 
even when what's happening around us does not feel very peaceful. In our minds and our hearts, we can find peace. See, God's peace isn't just for people who have no worries, who have no disagreements, who have no struggles. This is where God's peace just walks right into the midst of of our mess and of our chaos. And he gives us a confident assurance right in those circumstances that he is with us. I remember the story of a king who wanted to have a competition in his kingdom of among the artists, of the person who could paint the best picture representing peace. So the artists began to paint. And they presented their pictures one day to the king. And he went through all the, all the paintings that were submitted, and he picked two. It was down to two. One of those paintings was of a peaceful lake. It was so still and clear, it reflected the high mountains that went from all around the lake up into this blue sky with wispy clouds, birds flying, flowers painted on the meadows of the hillsides. It was certainly a picture of peace. And everybody thought that would be the painting that would certainly win. The other painting next to it also had mountains, but these mountains were dark and they were rugged. And they weren't coming up from a peaceful stream. Instead, there was a mountain, uh, there was a waterfall cascading down the side of the mountain. And everything was painted in gray tones. The sky was gray and darker gray. Rain was falling from the sky. Lightning was dancing across the sky. And everything did not speak of peace. If anything, it spoke of storm. Yet, Something caught the king's eye. In the midst of all this gray and all this dark shades of painting, he looks, and right behind this somewhat translucent waterfall is green. So he goes closer and looks, and it's a shrub that has grown out of the face of this rugged cliff. And on that shrub of green is a nest. And in that nest a little red bird, a mother bird sitting on her eggs. And when the king saw that, he said, this is the painting that best depicts peace. Why would he pick that one? Why not the one we all love, the serene lake, where nothing is, the water's not even moving, it's, it's peaceful, it's calm. It's, why would he do that? Because as a king, ruling a kingdom, he knows that that's not what peace looks like. Peace looks like that bird sitting in her nest on her eggs when everything around her screams storm and darkness. That's peace. And that's the kind of peace that Jesus has come to bring. When we choose to prioritize our relationship with Jesus and put him first and seek him first and cast our cares and our anxieties upon him, then we're freed to receive That supernatural peace that guards your heart and your mind, no matter what's happening around you, there is peace within amidst the chaos without. So peace on earth is not found within what this world has to offer. You won't find it in a package wrapped underneath your Christmas tree this year. Not what this world has to offer. It is only found within a relationship with Christ the Prince of Peace. You want peace as the Bible speaks of. It's peace with God, 
It's peace with others because of your peace with God through Christ Jesus. And it's peace no matter what you're going through. I know folks that have walked away from God's peace because their world did not look peaceful. And they still have not found peace. They ran away from their only source of true, lasting peace. Romans 15, 13, as our banner verse for this Advent series. And it's my prayer over you as it was Paul's prayer over the Roman Christians who would hear his letter. And these Romans, many of them would be persecuted for their faith right in the capital of the Roman Empire. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. I want us to bow our heads for a moment as we close today. Peace with God. Maybe that's what you need today. Maybe you don't feel like you're at peace with him. Maybe you think he hates you, that he wants nothing to do with you because you seem to live your life pretty much however you want to totally in rebellion to him, and well, the good news is he loves you, and his peace with him is available to you today. That's what Christmas is really all about, peace on earth through Christ Jesus, his son, Savior of the world. If you want peace with God today, with our heads bowed and eyes closed, if you want peace with God, you raise your hand and say, Kelly, that's me. I need peace with God today. Thank you. Anybody else? I need peace with God today. Thank you in the back. I see you. Thank you. I can't give you this peace, but God can. And the way it happens is you just are honest with God and you talk to him. And maybe when you're talking to him, it sounds maybe something like this prayer that I'm going to pray. God, forgive me. Forgive me of all the things that I have done that have served myself that have been sinful. Forgive me for the ways that through my sin I have had no care for you. But I thank you that today, because of Christ and his death for me on the cross, I can be forgiven. And you offer me peace. Peace with you. A peace I can't earn or pay for, but I can only now receive through your grace for me. So, God, I receive that peace today. Peace that you are my Lord and my Savior. Thank you for that peace with you. And when I feel anxious about that, remind me that I am forgiven. I am right with you because of Jesus. For others today, maybe you're knowing that you need to make some peace with others. you got family, you got friends that you're not at peace with this holiday season. And it hurts you. It pains you. And maybe the peace of God within your heart will now overflow and establish peace between the two of you. If you're here, say, Kelly, I need prayer today for peace with somebody in my life. Raise a hand if that's you. I need to make peace. Okay, thank you. Anybody else? I need to make peace. Yes. I need to make peace. Thank you. Now, God can help you here as you trust in him. He can, but it's going to cause you to do something now. 
and that's to be a peacemaker. So, Father, you see those that know they need to make peace with others, and I pray that that peace would, first of all, spring from the peace they have with you, the peace that will pass understanding, that will guard their heart and their mind, so they will be wise in how they reach out to their loved one. They will have love, grace, and the necessary truth to reconcile. Because in your word, peace had to do with restored relationships. And you will give them wisdom and opportunity for peace to be established. So I just pray ahead of time right now for that peace. In Jesus' name. And lastly, if you're here and you're saying, Kelly, my world's falling apart around me. I feel like that little bird in that painting, but I'm not so cheerful sitting on this nest. I am terrified because around me the world rages. And I need his peace today in my heart within, regardless of what's happening around me. If that's you, just raise a hand and say, Kelly, that's me. Pray. Yes, thank you. Anybody else? Pray for me. Thank you. Lord, you know what's going on in their lives. You know the things that surround them. And maybe some of the things that surround them, like it has for me, has been my own doing. And again, I can find forgiveness for that. Sometimes life is just hard and complicated and we don't understand what's going on around us or in our own bodies. But thank you that your peace is not based on what's happening outside of me. Your peace is within me. And nothing can shake that peace. So God, I pray for that peace to well up in their hearts. When life seems overwhelming, they would be reminded that their trust is in you and their hearts and their minds are set on you. And because of that, you will keep them in perfect peace. That's what Isaiah said. And I know you will do that as we trust in you. So God, my prayer is that that peace of Christmas that came as the baby lying in a manger, but now available to all of us by the Holy Spirit, that that peace would rule and reign in our hearts and our minds this holiday season because it started with you, the one who gives us peace. As we go from this place, God, we pray we would go in your peace as messengers of not only that, but of your joy and your hope and your love as well. In Jesus' name, amen. 